First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Ye husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And now please turn with me to our text this morning of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We looked at this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. This is, of course, one of Paul's letters that he wrote to young Pastor Timothy. And much of the instruction that he's given to Timothy is, is directed to the context of how to behave, how to act, how to your conduct, proper conduct in the context of worship, in the context of the church. And we'll find that that is the case for our text here today. If one wants a clear indication of just how Christianity and conservative evangelicalism has been influenced by modern thinking and by modern trends, then all one needs to do is to look at our text today and to read some of the writings that are available upon this text and see the denial of the truths that are here. You see the twisting of the Scriptures here and you see even attacks upon this text of Scripture. So that the traditional roles of men and women have been attacked largely from the rise of feminism in the 60s into the 70s. And so that traditional and historical interpretation and application of the Scripture, in particular of this text and other related texts, they've been placed under close scrutiny as well. It's important that we note that the attacks are not exclusively from outside the Christian community. There's the strong current within evangelicalism, even what we would deem conservative evangelicalism, to reinterpret women's roles. The debate is largely summarized in two parties. They're the, the egalitarians as opposed to the complementarians. The egalitarians hold to this principle that men and women in Christ are equal in every sense of the word 
so that they should be able to function in any role that they feel that God has called them to. And in particular, in the context of the church, that women should be able to fulfill the roles of ordained as elders, pastors, and deacons. On the other side of that is the complementarian position. The complementarian sees the role of women as the scriptures describe as being complementary to the role of men, a completion to the role of men, that they are certainly the same in their standing in Christ. Paul makes that clear in Galatians. That in Christ, that there is no male or female, not that all distinction is lost in their roles, or even that all distinction is lost in in the essence of who they are. But in Christ, that there is no advantage of position, whether you're male or female, whether you're slave or free, whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's his point there. He's not doing away with, with all distinctions. And we find that these attacks and these new interpretations that are becoming so prevalent within, again, within the context of conservative Christianity, that they are not driven by a new understanding of Scripture, a new understanding of the language of the Scriptures, or by a new understanding of hermeneutics or the interpretation of Scripture. That's not what's driving this thing. But you find that, in fact, it's driven by an agenda of political correctness that abandons any distinction in the roles between men and women. Because in the Western, modern, democratic mindset, if you make such distinctions, you are implying at least superiority and inferiority. That's the argument. And we would say, as complementarians, which we are, (laughs) that you're not implying inferiority or superiority by recognizing a distinction in roles. But that's that's the argument. That you can't have these distinctions because you're making women inferior. It's interesting that... Liberal scholarship, those who go to the Word of God, study the Word of God, but they don't have any confidence in divine inspiration. They don't have any confidence that the the Bible is relevant and applicable today. They just see that the Bible is, is an important historical book. It's got errors. It's got things that you can learn from, but you've got to weed through this stuff. Liberal scholarship who study the Word of God, interpret this text that we're going to be looking at today consistently with the traditional, historical position. And they only determine this, that Paul was wrong when he said these things. He shouldn't have said these things. Or he was accommodating his era in a a largely male-dominated society, so he was simply accommodating them. This is a new day, it's a new age, it's not relevant. 
So that is interesting, though, that among the liberals, they will interpret this text the same way we do. They just say, but who cares? What difference does it make? Paul is here at his worst. So it is a reminder to us of the difficulty of the task that we have. The difficulty of the task that I have in coming to this text here today. The task, the responsibility of a proper interpretation, a proper application of the scriptures regardless of personal experience or preference. That's not an easy task. Especially when we determine by the grace of God that we're not going to embrace a position simply because it is the traditional and the historical position. However, I think if you start veering from these things, you need to do so very carefully. Generally find the old guys are right. So I mentioned you got you, you folks before here that... Uh, I'm a member of the Dead Theologian Society. I like the old guys that are dead and long gone. Those are the guys I like to read. <laughs> the new theologians that are still alive, they're, they're, they're frightening. So we don't want to embrace a position because it simply is a traditional or the historical position. Nor do we want to dismiss a position because it is new and it is different from my own tradition. So that, that's the context of what we're trying to do when we look at this text. So the question that, that cannot help but arise in this, then, well, is there really any hope of rightly examining our text here today? Or is the truth and the relevance of this text lost in the noise of a debate, debating voices who are saying this says this, it means this, no, it says this, it means this, and they're determined that their agenda is going to win the day. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of voices out there. And they're saying very different things. Well, to answer that question, is there, is there a hope of rightly examining our text? The answer to that is yes. And the reason I say that the answer to that is yes is because we recognize that the understanding from the Word of God comes to us by the illumination of the Spirit of God. God still illuminates. God still reveals His truth to His people, to His church. I am going to express my own personal indebtedness to a particular a book that I've read a large portion of this week. It's entitled Women of the Church. In fact, I put it on the bottom of your, uh, where you have the sermon notes, recommended reading. Um, entitled Women of the Church, A Fresh Analysis of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Don't be frightened by the idea that says a fresh analysis. All it's saying is we're looking at this thing again. <laughs> And I think you'll find that it's, uh, it's they come with it, with the traditional and historical view intact. Uh, particularly, I mentioned on the bottom of your sheet there, there's one chapter here, chapter 5, an interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15. I'm going to be referencing, incidentally, some material in this book throughout my sermon. It's a dialogue with scholarship by Thomas Schreiner. To me, that's, this book is worth its value in that one chapter. Because he not only discusses the, the interpretation of the text by dealing with the original language, but he also addresses current trends and counter-interpretations that have been offered and why most of those are invalid 
why they won't they simply won't hold water. When I was in seminary, uh, Dan Doriani, one of the professors who used to be at Covenant Seminary, he, uh, in fact, he wrote an appendix in this book. But he he spoke he was speaking to us in a class about this book uh, because he's taught a good number of the New Testament classes, and uh, he he said that when he read chapter five in this book by Thomas Schreiner, he said, I read that chapter. He said, I was in my study or in his office. He said, I read that chapter. He said, I had to put the book down. And he said, I just had to, to, to walk away from it. And by that, just he said, it was so good. I just said, there's nothing else to say. Now, Schreiner is much more modest than that. He will say, you know, I'm not offering there the definitive word. I think he has. So if you want to have... What I think is at least the most sound and comprehensive that deals with with those who disagree and why their positions are not sound biblical exegesis. Uh, this is a book to have in your library. I'll commend it to you without any reservation. In particular, chapter five there. He does he does engage with the New Testament Greek, but you don't have to know Greek to benefit from this. So that's a. I'd sell, sell for you. I put all the information here. If you want to buy it, I who it's published by, Baker Books of Grand Rapids. So if you can get a copy of that, I know you would very much enjoy it. And I certainly am indebted to this book myself. It's a sound defense in light of the, the current trends that rise up against the historical and traditional view of our text here. Let's begin reading here. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. But it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved, and actually the word there is rightly translated, shall be saved. It's the word translated saved. The women shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Well, I don't think anyone could doubt today that in our, in our society, particularly in the West, as far as women are concerned, the sky is the limit. The sky is the limit. Uh, we are in a position now where we have, I think, for the first time, we have for the first time, a viable candidate for the presidency who's a woman. Now, we've had others entertain and even go through primaries that I don't think they proved to be viable. I think now we're looking at a viable candidate. That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) But we are. I mean, this this is where we have come, that the sky is the limit. I heard a pastor say a number of years ago, he said that Western women have no idea what they owe to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Western women have no idea what they owe to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you look, you look at where women are experiencing the most freedom, liberties, and opportunities. And it is those cultures where either the gospel 
prevails or it has historically been there. It's been there before. And there's still some influence of that. And you go to those, to those cultures where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has not penetrated. And you see the difference of the roles and the opportunities that are afforded to women in those cultures. Wonderful opportunity afforded to women of the West because of what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has opened up to them. And we see I, in our day the, the throwing off of the scriptural bounds for that. And then we see the insistence of going far beyond what is right and what is good and what is proper. Now you expect that in the world. But we are having to deal with it within the context of the church as well. And that's more troubling. So women have the opportunity here today, and particularly speaking largely, and we are in a Western context, so I speak in that context. Of all types of pursuits. You are in the land of opportunity in a very real sense. And what I want to lay before our ladies today, but also to lay before us as a church and to husbands and to fathers. Those things which Scripture commend, those directives which we can discern from the Scriptures, those pursuits which are honorable, which I've entitled my message this morning, honorable pursuits for the godly woman. And I trust that as we go through this, that it will be something that is is of encouragement to us. I don't think that we'll hear anything new. I hope that the sense that there's any sense of being troubled today, if you when you leave, (laughs) men and women. I hope that the sense will be that I wish he would have dealt more specifically with some of the text. I don't have time to do that. I'm going to deal with the text. Don't misunderstand me. But I cannot deal with all the nuances. I mean, you're talking about a text that has been absolutely cut apart to pieces word by word and dissected and reanalyzed and reinterpreted by those who have tried to say it can't mean this. It must mean this. If you want to deal with that, get this book and read it. And maybe in another context, I will be able to do that. But uh, I'm just going to focus on what I, what I consider to be three overarching, large, godly pursuits. Honorable pursuits for the godly woman that Paul gives to the church of his day and to the church of our day. We're the same. First of all. The first pursuit for godly women is contentment with the creation guide or the creation goal. Contentment with the creation guide. What is the biblical relationship between men and women in regard to authority, particularly as we're speaking here as this is what uh, Paul is addressing in the context of the church? What is the biblical relationship Between men and women in regard to authority. Paul's response is this. Very simply stated in verse 11. That let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. submissiveness. Now the word quietly here has become almost, almost completely in modern commentators. The word translated here quietly is deemed to be speaking of with a quiet and submissive spirit. I don't think that's what it means here. 
I think what he says quietly, I think he means quietly. In quietness. And the reason I think that is because he emphasizes that exact same word at the end of verse 12. But to remain quiet. So the, the context with verse 12 favors the meaning of that they are to, to listen, to receive quietly, silently. He says, with all submission, to listen silently with all submission. In other words, with an attitude of, of entire submission to the entrusted leadership, to the men who are entrusted with the authority within the context of the church, serving as your pastors and elders and teachers. That they are to hear these things. Alright, that's a statement to make, but what does he back it up with? So that sounds like somebody who's got his mind made up. This is what women ought to do. This is what men ought to do. But what's Paul's foundation for this? Well, he explains it further here. Verse 12, clarifying verse 11. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I believe he's speaking of two different things there, incidentally. And it's not, I think we understand, it's not an absolute prohibition against women teaching in any capacity. We recognize that, that women are gifted teachers and they are encouraged to teach children and, and encouraged to teach <clears throat> other women. In fact, the older women are granted that responsibility in other places in the Scripture to train and to teach the younger women. Shriner addresses and I think clarifies, I'm going to read some of this this morning soon because I think he articulates it so well. I, it's better than me trying to pull it out and recite it, re-say some things here. What he, how he addresses this particular verse in verse 12, I did not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. He says two things are forbidden for a woman, for a woman, teaching and exercising authority over a man. The emphatic position of to teach at the beginning of verse 12, does not show that the verse is a parenthesis. In other words, it's just not something that's been thrown in here. Instead, Paul emphasizes that although women are permitted to learn, they cannot teach. So what's he talking about? Teaching here involves the authoritative and public transmission of tradition about Christ and the Scriptures. It is clear from the rest of the pastoral epistles <clears throat> that the teaching in view is the public transmission of authoritative material. The elders, in particular, are to labor in teaching so that they can refute the false teachers who advance their heresy. <coughs> Excuse me. It is crucial that the correct teaching and apostolic deposit are passed on to the next generation. The prohibition against women teaching is not absolute and it's probably given because some women were teaching both men and women when the church assembled. Men, that women teaching, I'm skipping a few things because he deals with the Greek here. So I'm just hitting with the high parts here. The women teaching men is what is forbidden. Those who hold to the historic view 
which is the complementarian position. Those who hold to the historic view do not doubt that women can teach children and or other women. And he notes that we're commanded, commanded to do so. Neither does the private teaching of Apollos by Priscilla and Aquila contradict what is said here. For this is profoundly different from the public and authoritative teaching in view in the pastoral epistles. And then he goes on to say, authoritative teaching is usually a function of the elders and the overseers. And it is likely that, that Paul is thinking of them here. Thus, women are proscribed from functioning as elders or overseers. <coughs> but another gentleman also correctly observes that they are prohibited from the function of public and authoritative teaching of men by this verse as well. So there's a clarifying of, of what says there in verse 11, 12, and I just think he deals with it much more clearly than I could summarize it. But what's his reason? There's his principle in verse 11, clarified in verse 12, but what's his reason? Paul's reason that he gives <coughs> is the creation order reveals God's intention. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. In other words, that there is more here than just a, just a, a revealing of a chronology of events. That there is, there is a revelation here of God's intent, of God's plan by the creation of Adam first. And Paul just simply refers to that. And please note that this is, this is pre-fall. We're not dealing with fallen man and fallen woman. We're dealing with pre-fall conditions. That when God created Eve, He created man and woman, male and female. They were created without sin. And in that condition, that, that Adam was designated as the authority. Let me go to <coughs> Schreiner again. I'm going to whet your appetite for this book. You're going to go home and get on your internets and buy this book this afternoon. Make sure I've got the right section here. <clears throat> here's a couple of things he addresses from this standpoint. He says Paul's purpose is more restricted here than he stated above I go on. He wants to focus on the fact that the serpent approached and deceived Eve, not Adam. <coughs> the significance of the serpent targeting Eve is magnified for apparently Adam was with Eve during the temptation. In approaching Eve, the serpent subverted the pattern of male leadership, interacted only with Eve during the temptation. Adam was present throughout and did not intervene. The Genesis temptation, therefore, is a parable. He's not saying it's a parable story. He's just saying it's used in a parabolic sense because he holds that it is an actual historical story of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. Eve took the initiative in responding to the serpent and Adam let her do so. But he said the explanation cannot stop here. God's order of creation is mirrored in the nature of men and women. Satan approached the woman first, not only because of the order of creation, but also because of the different inclinations present in Adam and Eve. Generally speaking, and this is where people get uncomfortable. Generally speaking, women are more rational and nurturing and men are more given to rational analysis and objectivity. 
Women are less prone than men to see the importance of doctrinal formulations, especially when it comes to the issue of identifying heresy and making a stand for the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. Appointing women to the office, to teaching office, is prohibited because they are less likely to draw a line on doctrinal non-negotiable non-negotiables, and thus deception and false teaching will more easily enter the church. This is not to say. Please note that women are intellectually deficient or inferior to men. I'm not saying that. If women were intellectually inferior, Paul would not allow them to teach women and children. What concerns him are the consequences of allowing women in the authoritative teaching office for their gentler and kinder nature inhibits them from excluding people for doctrinal error. There is the danger of stereotyping here. For obviously, some women are more inclined to objectivity and are tougher and less nurturing than other women. But as a general rule, women are more relational and caring than men. This explains why most women have many more close friends than men. The different inclinations of women and men do not imply they are inferior or superior to men. It simply demonstrates that men and women are profoundly different. Women are prohibited from the teaching office not only because of the order of creation, but also because they are less likely to preserve the apostolic tradition in inhabiting the teaching office. So God's creation order serves as a guide for the roles of women. And Paul cites the Eve's deception there. And it's not saying because she was gullible and she was fooled, so you can't have women in that position. It's just saying this just reveals that there's a difference between men and women. And Satan recognized that, and he, and he attacked that. So, you know, again, I'm not going to be as thorough here as I'd like to be, but we do have to come down to this. Dear Christian women, are you willing to be content with God's creative guide, as God has revealed to us, which Paul appeals to in the Scripture here? To see God's pattern, to see God's design as the Apostle Paul does and determine that God's way is in fact the best way. Are we to believe that, that we can improve upon that? <coughs> Are we believe, to believe that simply because we have advanced and promoted the equality among women in our societies and our cultures to a large degree that is good and it ought to be done, but are we to believe that, it's, that it undermines biblical authority? That we can improve upon the biblical record. God's way is the best way. And to recognize the creation order here has given to us that the, that the women are not to exercise authority over men within the context of the church. And I think likewise in the home. That you're not being asked or commanded or directed to settle for second class status within the church. Hasn't that have anything to do with that? It's not as though, well, the real positions are held by men and the leftovers are for the women. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's simply recognizing that God has revealed to us that there is a distinction within the roles of women and men. It's apparent from creation. It's apparent from the fall. And Paul appeals to that. And... 
I'll do no better. I'll, I'll make no stronger argument than that. It's what the Scripture teaches, what the Scripture indicates to us. <coughs> and to understand that a role of submission for women in no respect conveys inferiority. If submission conveys inferiority, then Jesus the Son is inferior to God the Father. Because Jesus the Son submitted. He submitted Himself to the will of God the Father. There is no inferiority in Christ to the Father. He is the same in essence, equal with God the Father. There is one God, three persons. And so we need to get beyond this, this Western and this modern way of thinking that, well, if you say that this is a role for men that women can't fulfill, then this is nothing better than inferiority. This is nothing better than the demanding of women second-class roles within the church, and it's not the case at all. And you bypass these roles in the church, and you've got problem after problem arising. And ever how sincere, as is well-intending, Women pastors and elders, and there's plenty of them, a lot of, lot of husband and wife pastor teams now. That's becoming the popular thing. However well-intentioned these things may be, for a woman to stand in, the, in that position, she is undermining what she is intending to support, to support, and that is biblical authority. You cannot help but do that. So we come back to what... Do the scriptures say a contentment with the creation God? I can imagine this could chafe against the heart of many a woman, especially if you've come from a background where you've where you've kind of done your own thing, done what you wanted to do, pursued your own interest. And the scriptures challenge that. So it comes here to the authority of what's revealed to us in scripture. Second thing, second honorable pursuit for, for women is that. Pursued to be consistent. <clears throat> to be consistent with a claim to godliness. Verse 9 and 10. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing and modesty, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Paul expects that Christian women should reflect their profession. That there should be a consistency of life with one's claim to godliness. Say, oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute, Pastor. I'm not making any claim to godliness. Uh, I'm a Christian. And I'm saved. And I'm not the best Christian in the world. I'm not making any claim to I'm not godly. I can make any such claim. Yes, you are. You claim Christ. You claim godliness. Godliness, all it simply means is that you live your life as though there is a God. That's all it is. And a person who has come to Jesus Christ to be a Christian... You are a Christian. You are making a claim to godliness. First Timothy chapter two, verse two. Paul's exhortation is to pray for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Who's he talking to? Believers. It's part of the norm for believers 
Second Peter chapter one, verse three. <clears throat> Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to <coughs> to life and godliness. There is no Christianity without godliness. So let's not try to make that distinction. Well, in what way is this godliness to be reflected? Paul's division here is distinguished by the word proper. Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with, with proper clothing and modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And then he speaks of in verse 10 as that which befits women making a claim to godliness, that which is befits believers. <clears throat> Paul dares to speak of something being proper. <laughs> Listen, we understand properness. We understand appropriateness and inappropriateness in so many contexts. Why is it we are so ready and willing to close an eye to this? And to accept the world's mores or lack thereof and adopt them into the church and particularly women into your own personal lives. That according to Paul here, that those women who are of grace, women in the faith, that you have a higher and distinct expectations placed upon you higher than worldly women. Women who have not come to Christ. There ought to be a difference. And he speaks of in two things. First of all, in verse 10, there's those proper deeds, those things that are appropriate. To do those things by, rather by means of good works. Let these things be what you adorn. Good works, deeds, and activities which are commended by God. To go to the Scriptures, to allow the Scriptures to be our guide in those things in which I am to commit myself to do. To look to the Scriptures and find those, those specific roles that I can fulfill as a wife or as a mother. That, that my husband or the men are not called and are capable of fulfilling. And to give yourself to those things. Or just simply to go to those scriptures that are common for all of us, that we all are commended to good deeds, the kind deeds of kindness, deeds of mercy, deeds of help, good deeds, those things which are a reflection that you are in Christ, that give testimony of the grace of God at work in your heart and in your life. So we choose to consider the directives of Scripture as our guide for life. But he also speaks in verse 9 of proper dress. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And please note that he's not speaking here in absolute terms against braiding of the hair, nor wearing of gold and pearls, nor in costly garments, which the text that we read from Peter's letter earlier, I think, would clarify those things. You're not to give your things yourself merely to these things. But he does use the word here of modestly and discreetly. Adornment that is extravagant, that which speaks of one's wealth, that which compels attention to be drawn toward me, worn to attract attention to oneself. But also clothing that is that is seductive, that is enticing, intended or not. 
this isn't a place that we like to go. It's not a place that I'm not going into a lot of detail here, and I hope you understand the reason for that. But there is an appropriateness of dress, dear women of God. And it's not a bondage. It's not bondage. It's freedom. And I'll tell you, it is a freedom that prevents many of your brethren from struggling. So out of love for God, out of love for your husbands, out of love for your brothers in Christ, to to take such a commandment to heart, to be honest. If you want to know, ask your husbands. And husbands, be honest. Tell your wives that there are places that you don't need to go. There are things that you don't need to see. That there are things that she doesn't need to wear because you don't want anybody else to be wearing it either. Now we have a, a book on our back table back here. Another recommended reading if you haven't read it. Jeff Pollard has written a book. It's called Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America. And you read there, he just does a wonderful job of detailing the influence of Hollywood upon the dress culture of our society, male and female, particularly female. And you owe it to yourself, women, to read that. To understand that there is such a thing as Christian modesty and those things that we will and we will not wear. It's being committed to recognizing the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life, including your wardrobe. See, there is a genuine way to reflect your claim to godliness. There is a genuine way to reflect that you are indeed in Christ. That is by what you do, the good deeds, but also what you wear. How you dress. You know, I, I give some Christian women the benefit of the doubt. I just think they just must live in absolute oblivion to the mindset of men. And if men are dead honest, it doesn't take nearly as much. I'll use the words of Rob Spoon, another book that he read, wrote, but I haven't even gotten out yet. <laughs> But it's on modesty. But he said it just doesn't take as much skin as you might think to be revealed. Women, dear Christian women, be wise. Be wise unto the the differences in the way that God has made women and men. That it doesn't take much for your brothers in Christ to to have issues to have problems with what's revealed. You claim Christ, you claim godliness. How does godliness act? What does godliness look like? You know, one of the one of the difficulties that Beth has encountered is we is just finding clothing for our daughters. And I'm sure you mothers of daughters, you're finding the same thing. It's difficult. They got clothes for seven year olds that make them look like they're thirteen or fourteen year old. But it's a willingness to be committed to certain principles, the principles of modesty, and to do whatever is necessary to abide by those. Folks, listen. <clears throat> this isn't optional. <laughs> I mean, this is I'm glad Paul used that word. Paul stuck that word in there. I don't have to interpret modestly. It's there. It's there. 
You adorn yourselves with what's proper of those who make a claim to godliness. And if it's not modest, if it's immodest, it's not proper. And it's, listen, it's sinful. It's sinful. Because it is knowingly causing others to sin. And if you know it's immodest and you're doing it anyway, it's sin on your part. Because you're doing it deliberately. Do not, dear women of God, do not neglect the inward beauty of a holy life. And to think, well, that's just, no, it's not real. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to see, to see women who have, whose lives are marked by holiness and godliness. And, and to be truth with you, you know, this isn't, I don't think this is a strange idea. There are varying degrees of beauty within women. And I have seen some women that I would have esteemed in some respects to be, rather was the old Sarah Plain and tall Sarah, rather plain in some respect. But you see, there's a beauty to these women because of the holiness that exudes from their life. It's not all about their shape or their body or their appearance or their face. There's the beauty that comes from the inside out. You can't replace that. Don't neglect the inward beauty of a holy life by a mere outward self-centered focus on appearance. Deal with that which is precious in the in the sight of God, according to Peter three, First Peter three four. What's precious to God? So it's to pursue consistency with what you profess. You profess Christ. Act like it and look like it. Now, I'm not proposing that we go back to the Amish community. I'm not proposing that. But there is modesty. There is appropriateness for those who profess Christ. And thirdly, To be constant in Christian gracious graces. To be constant in Christian graces. Verse 15. Boy, this is a fun verse. <laughs> the women shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Paul's encouragement to women is this. You'll be saved through the bearing of the children. Now, what in the world does that mean? First of all, <clears throat> Paul has not declined here to a sense of meritorious salvation. You have kids and God will save you. That's not what he's talking about here. Let me give what I, Shriner addresses this. Again, does, does a, I think, a masterful job of explaining that phrase for us. Speaking particularly of the word, the term here of childbearing, that women shall be preserved and saved through the bearing of children to childbearing. He says childbearing is probably selected by synecdoche. Notice synecdoche is when you use one word to include much more than that word involves. Right? You, you use one small word, but it means much more than that word. For example, when we speak of, we speak of the cross of Christ, we're not talking about a piece of wood. 
We talk about the importance of the cross of Christ. What do we mean? We're talking about the redemptive work of Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. But we can summarize it. You know, what does Paul say? We proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. That's all I ever preached about? Of course not. But we'll speak of the cross in a, as a synecdoche. It's used one word, but it's got a wide breadth of what's involved. When it, that's what Paul seems to have done here when he uses this word. And I, I agree with this. He uses this word childbearing as used by synecdoche as representing the appropriate role for women. This rounds out the passage because a woman should not violate her role by teaching <coughs> or exercising authority over a man. Instead, she should take her proper role as a mother of children. <clears throat> it could be argued that the reference to women bearing children is culturally limited to the domestic and maternal roles of Paul's day. More likely, <clears throat> Paul saw in the woman's function of giving birth a divinely intended and ongoing difference of function between men and women. So he's, he's using this term because this term clearly defines a difference between men and women. This does not mean that all women must have children in order to be saved. He's hardly attempting to be comprehensive here. He selects childbearing because it is the most notable example of the divinely intended difference in role between men and women. And most women throughout history have had children. To select childbearing is another indication that the argument is transcultural for childbearing is not limited to a particular culture, but is permanent and ongoing difference between men and women. And the fact that God has ordained that women and only women bear children and indicates that the difference in roles between men and women are rooted in the created order. When he says that a woman will be saved by childbearing, he, he means, therefore, they will be saved by adhering to their ordained role. Such a statement is apt to be misunderstood. Right? <laughs> And thus, a further comment is added for explanation. Women will be saved if they remain in faith, in love, and sanctification, along with discretion. Therefore, Paul shows that it's not sufficient for salvation for Christian women merely to bear children. They must also persevere in faith, love, holiness, and presumably other virtues. Some would look at this and say, well, he's, then he's still preaching some type of works here. Those, granted, he's using the bearing of children as a synecdoche. Then he says, but it's only going to happen if you continue in faith and in love and in sanctity. Well, it's not unusual that Paul ties salvation to perseverance. For example, he does it in, in this same letter in chapter 4, verse 16, regarding Timothy, where he tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere. In these things. Why? For as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In other words, persevere to ensure your salvation. You do not persevere. You've got no warrant to believe that you have in fact experienced salvation. So it's not unusual for Paul to use what is actually the fruit of salvation. Perseverance. Perseverance. In this, in this way. 
He's not saying do this so that you will be saved. He's simply saying that if you are a believer, if you are truly in grace, truly in faith, you will persevere in these things. And the absence of these things is a clear indication that in fact you are likely outside faith. So it's an appropriate evidence for salvation, perseverance. So dear women of faith, women of grace, the word here would be to press on. To be constant in the Christian graces. To not succumb to the pressures and to the allurements and to the attraction of the world. And you got to admit, sometimes it looks pretty attractive out there, doesn't it? But to let Christ be your satisfaction. To let the Scriptures be your guide. To run the race, dear sisters. To fight the fight to the end with the hope of an eternal glory that awaits you. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. And take advantage of the means of grace that God gives you. He does, you know, he, a Shriner does talk about <clears throat> just the need that, that women have for closer friendships and relationships. Build upon those. Find women of, of like mind, of like concern, and who, who are there with you. I'll tell you, you try to do this on your own and you feel like you're on an island by yourself against a world that's coming with a flood against you. And you say, what's the use? What hope is there? But to find sisters of like mind and, and develop those, those friendships and like mind just simply being those who are concerned about the scriptural roles of women and what they should, what they should mean. And dear women and mothers, Mother's Day, you think of those who come behind you. You're raising another generation. The next generation. They are the ones who will largely benefit from the sacrifices and choices that you make. From the testimony of perseverance. Are they are the generation that will suffer? Because it was not a battle you deemed worth fighting and you quit. Press on. Press on. I'm encouraged when I see Seniors in the faith. Godly women and men who have who've lived the Christian life. And you know what? You see them in their 60s and their 70s and 80s. And I don't mean to embarrass, but I'm very thankful of the combos. To have... You're older than most of us. No, I'm thankful. To have them as a part of our work here. And to see them continuing. You know, they're, they're not... I've sensed nothing other. We've done our part. Let the next generation take. You know, they're still walking with God. And still influencing the next generation and the next with their grandchildren. The opportunities that we have. Don't let that be lost. The times that you don't feel like pressing on, let Christ be your satisfaction. But look to the eyes of your children. Women, look to the eyes of your daughters. 
and press on for the sake of the gospel of Christ and for the great for the sake of your children to raise up a godly seed long after we are gone. Honorable pursuits for godly women. Ladies, there are lots of things you can give your energy and your time to. These are things that Paul commends to us, the Scriptures commend to us, to be content with the creation as our guide. There is an order. There is a roles of submission. With that, men, comes roles of leadership. To live a life that is consistent with your claim to godliness. You claim Christ. It should be evident. It should be evident by your good works and by your appearance. And to be constant in Christian graces. And that's a call for all of us here today, men and women, to be constant in Christian graces. Pressing on to not give up the fight. There is too much to lose. Not only our own souls. Say, wait a minute, I know I'm a Christian. It's not the words of Paul. You quit. You've lost any assurance that you're truly a child of God. Because perseverance is the fruit, is the fruit of grace. You will press on. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word to our hearts this morning and something of the difficulty of of the issues before us, but I think something necessary in light of our day and certainly appropriate as it's revealed in the scriptures. I pray that you would give our our ladies and our our wives here wisdom and grace not to to take upon standards that are that are not necessary, but simply to go to the scriptures and say this is appropriate, this is proper for the claim to godliness that I profess, and give us wisdom as pastors, elders, as husbands, fathers, in directing and training, and loving and guiding, as you've called us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.